Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Tilly Brogan is joining us for Tilly's Fiction Addiction. I'll be looking at alternative literary presents. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Hello. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. Thank you for joining us today. As usual, it's a packed show. We've got Tilly Brogan, who's chosen Legend Born by Tracy Dion for her Tilly's fiction addiction this month. We've also got some great ideas for alternative Christmas presents for book lovers, which aren't necessarily books. Who doesn't love a literary wintry walk, for example? And we've got some suggestions for books of the year. How many have you read? And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you all. And as usual, every week we say, don't forget, we really would like to hear from you. And if you have uh, a favourite author that you want to tell us about, or you're reading a book at the moment that is really giving you a thrill and you want to recommend it, please let us know. And also, if you're running a local book club or you are a local author, please get in touch. You can get in touch with me uh, by emailing me at julian at river.radio with any of your news or your information. And we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So, Heather, let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about books. Oh, absolutely. And I've got to say, for all those sport lovers out there, commentator and former cricketer Michael Holding has won the £30,000 William Hill Sports Book of the Year prize for his book, Why We Kneel and How We Rise, which is published by Simon and Schuster. Um, judges described the title, which examines it examines the roots of racism, um, and he, they describe it as one of the most important sports books you will ever read. So that sounds like a big thumbs up for that book, and it includes contributions from people such like um, Zane Bolt, Thierry Henry, Naomi Osaka, and Michael Johnson, among other great sporting greats. So a really good Christmas present idea there. Certainly indeed. And uh, this is a really interesting little item, um, which could have come with a very eye-watering fine, (laughs) because a library book was returned after being a mere 110 years overdue. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <clears throat> the book was uh, the book was uh, the New Chronicles of Rebecca, which was a 1907 novel by Kate Douglas Wiggins, and it was returned surreptitiously by someone who left the book on the side to be noticed by one of the librarians. And when it was uh, uh, opened up and the uh, the date stamp inspected, a rather faded date stamp, it showed that it should have been returned on the 8th of November in 1911. So it was only 40,000 days late. Oh God, no wonder. They surreptitiously left it behind, too embarrassed to face it. Exactly, too right. (laughs) 
Now, last week we mentioned the island, the island of the missing trees by Alif Shafak, and uh, we sort of mentioned it in passing. And it's been absolutely remiss of us not to have given it a higher profile in the show because Alif Shafak is absolutely fantastic. She's one of our most unique novelists today. Um, I've met her at a literary festival, and she's absolutely fabulous. She's a real storyteller. She's British Turkish and a passionate defender of free speech and the power of the story to give voice to the voiceless and uh, she's she's brilliant. And her latest book, which has been shortlisted for the novel section of the Costa Book Awards, oh, is yes. set in Cyprus in 1974 and in London in the late 2010s. And it centres around two lovers who meet in a secret under a beautiful fig tree in a local taverna, but of course become separated by the political violence that split Cyprus in two that year. And as I say, Alif is just a born storyteller and this book, like her previous ones, will transport you in both in time and place and thoroughly recommended. Lovely. Uh, best-selling author Maggie O'Farrell, um, and we've spoken about her recent uh, novel Hamnet on the show before, has won the Women's Prize for Fiction um, last year and has confessed that Beatrix Potter's bucolic tales and drawings of Peter Rabbit and Jemima Puddleduck are sinister and scary. Now, when I first saw that, I wasn't too sure, really, and then, but then it sort of makes sense and you could, because you can see what she, what she means because Peter Rabbit's father was eaten by Miss is McGregor, the farmer's wife, and Mr. Todd is the Machiavellian fox who's always trying to get poor old Jemima Puddleduck into his shed so he can gobble her up. Um, O'Farrell claimed they're more akin to Shakespeare's bloodiest stories like Titus Andronicus. Never thought about them like that before. No, but also I think kids like well, they being do. horrified. <laughs> I must remember, I always remember when my English teacher told me about the time he went to see t- Titus Andronicus in uh, Stratford and it was so scary, he actually threw up and I just thought, <laughs> wow, that's brilliant. I really want to go and see that play. <laughs> But also when you when you look back at, you know, nursery rhymes and things that we recited, you know, here comes the chopper to chop off your head. You know, I mean, it's that yeah, children do. They sort of revel in it in, a, in an extraordinary way. Anyway. Yeah, I know. You- but it's sort of it's also interesting that did you see that uh, article in the paper about Aberdeen University where there's a warning that when they're doing Robert Louis Stevenson's book Kidnapped, it says warning contains kidnaps. <laughs> <laughs> And you sort of think the clue's in the title, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? Anyway, anyway, we (laughs) digress. So Oscar Wilde, one of the most famous residents of Reading Jail, is motivating Banksy, the street artist at the moment, into raising some money. Um, So what uh, Reading Jail is trying to be turned into an art centre, which Mm. sounds a really good idea. So Balsy, of course, recently has painted a stencil down the wall of the jail, depicting a figure, possibly Oscar Wilde, abseiling down the perimeter wall on bedsheets with a typewriter at the bottom of the sheets. I don't know if people have seen it. It's covered in perspex now, so it's protected from the elements. I I did see it it in the newspapers. Yes, yeah. yeah. So in an interview, Banksy suggests that Wilde was the patron saint of smashing two contrasting ideas together to create magic. And I think that's actually what Banksy does, isn't Mm. it? And um, he then added that converting the place that destroyed him, i.e. Reading Jail, um, into a refuge for art feels so perfect, we have to do it. And I've got to say, 
I can't agree with him more. And lots of famous people are behind it. But really, the key is money. So the prison was actually built over the site of the medieval Reading Abbey. And Henry oh, I is believed to have been buried there. And it's now obviously a really interesting Victorian building and it's got really strong links to literary history and the LGBT community. And Reading Council are all in favour, well done Reading Council, and they've put numerous proposals forward to the Ministry of Justice, but they're responsible for selling the land and unfortunately money is at the root of all evil here because Mm. uh, they obviously need to raise more funds and hopefully Banksy's involvement will provide the impetus necessary. Well, I certainly hope so, because I think that sounds a, a, a really, um, uh, not to say worthy cause, I mean, that sounds a bit, you know, trite, but, but really important, because I think, you know, have a sort of a literary um, sort of a heritage centre in, in Reading would be good, you know, because there's the university in the town as well. So I think it's really important. And certainly if, if one of our kings is buried underneath it. Yeah, and also that yeah. Oscar Wilde thing is really key. Yes, the it's, ballad yeah, of yeah, absolutely. Jail. Absolutely. Very important. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, this is River Radio, in case you've forgotten and you're listening to Turning Pages with uh, Heather and me, Julian. Thank you for listening. And it's that time again. We we are joined by Tilly Brogan for her fantastic Tilly's Fiction Addiction. And now this month, she has chosen the YA book Legend Born by the US author Tracy Dion. Now, it's not a book I was familiar with before now, but I must admit to leaving the conversation with the pledge to read it. So let's hear what she has to say. Tilly, hi. You've chosen Tracy Dion Legend Born this week, published by Simon and Shuster in September. Sorry, there seems to be a technical hit here. Let me just try again. And we will, um, we will try again and see. Uh, we've got a technician in the studio today, which is very exciting. <laughs> so we're just going to try that again. So this is Tilly talking about Legend Born. Tilly, hi. You've chosen the Tracy Dion Legend Born this week. Published by Simon and Shuster in September 2020, so last year. Yes, very new. And it was a New York Times bestseller and it's been nominated for loads of prizes and won lots of nominations and things. So uh, how did you discover the book? It sounds really weird now you're saying that, that it's been nominated for so much and yet I found it on Bookstagram. So someone I follow on my Bookstagram account was talking about it for ages they were saying how they loved it because they felt really represented because the main protagonist, Brie, she's a woman of colour. And I am trying to read more diverse YA books because there's so many great YA books that are by um, authors of colour and also LGBTQ plus authors. So I'm making my mission to try and read more diverse YA. And I found this book and I was like, right, that's the next one for me. I also heard it was similar to Shadowhunters as well. And obviously I love the series. So I thought, why not? I've got to say, I was just having a little look through the reviews and somebody had TikTok made me buy this book. <laughs> Social media for sure pushed me into that direction. Yeah. So how would you describe the book in a sentence? Let's go with a thrilling YA fantasy that mixes Arthurian legends, supernatural demons, and Southern Black American history and culture. Okay. Is that good? 
That's intriguing. Intri- no, intriguing indeed, yeah. So I'm loving the Arthurian legend bit of it, so I can really yes. sort of get with that. So anyway, give us a little bit more about the storyline and a quick summary of the book. I was going to say that's a very intriguing, vague statement, but also specific at the same time. So the book follows Bree Matthews, and after her mother dies, she enrolls in a residential programme at an American college. And on the first night of campus, she witnesses a demon attack. And the people that end up killing the demon try to wipe her memory of it, but they fail because you you find out why they fail. So the story is basically Brie finding out about who these people are and what they do. So they're called Legendborn and they're demon hunters descended from the Knights of the Round Table, so the, the Arthur Knights. She basically infiltrates their group and enrolls herself in their initiation so she can find out more. But along the way, she finds out more about who she is and her mother and her mother's death and sort of their relation to the legendborn. And I won't say anything else there, but that's the story in a nutshell, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And it yeah. sounds <laughs> it sounds a great story. It really is. So how much of the Arthurian legend is there in the book? For me, it's the perfect mix because I've always said that I'm sick of just learning about like white history and white legends. And I really think Trace Dion has brought this into the modern era and sort of made the Arthurian tales more diverse and open for all, not just the people that looked like the Arthurian legends and the people in them. And I think by blending it with the Southern Black American history, it does bring it forward. And for me, it showcases the importance of telling everyone's family history, regardless of their race or colour of their skin, which I think is a really good thing. Yeah. So that was really interesting, it being sort of set, it quite deeply set in that sort of Southern American um, area. And I probably don't know that much history about that. Has it encouraged you to find out more about US US history or is that part of the school education now? So I wasn't taught anything about US history in school, not university, but my best friend studied American history and I'm really interested in history. So I sat her down and I was like, please tell me everything. So, yeah, she told me everything I need to know. I wasn't taught anything about slavery from the United States or anything about the British Empire. I actually had to choose a module at university to study that, which really annoyed me because I'm a big believer in making this mandatory on the school curriculum. I think it's not that long ago. We really need to like, learn the truth about what actually happened. And it's a difficult subject to breach, but I think it needs to be discussed. And for me, Legendborn is a good way of doing that, especially with the American South and slavery in that era. For me, I think it's a really good stepping stone for learning more about Black American South culture. Because it is absolutely fascinating. And of course, with all the race riots that you see on a regular basis over in the States, it's still very topical, isn't it? Yeah, I think in the UK as well. I think everywhere, everyone just needs to learn about it and learn the history. And it's difficult to talk about, but it needs to be spoken about. I think books like this really open up the conversation and teach people and make people want to know more and intrigue people to actually find out more themselves, I think. I think every good book just inspires you to read around the subject, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Even even a fantasy book, obviously, is this one's set in truth as well. I mean, every every book's a stepping stone. Book is a stepping stone, yeah. Where did I get that from? (laughs) So you've chosen a part of the book for us to listen to. So can you introduce the reading to us? Yes, I can. So it's, I think it's about chapter three or so. It's quite near the beginning. 
So after Brie and her friend are caught off campus on one of the first nights, she's assigned a peer mentor to look after her. And one thing I love about Brie is that she's not only super independent, but she was also like super brutally honest about what she wants. And she just like, basically, she the last thing she wants is a stranger getting involved in her personal life. So the part I've chosen is her meeting Nick, who is her so-called mentor for the first time. Fantastic. Let's listen to that now. By the time I finished dinner, the sun has set and ribbons of deep purple and burnt orange streak through the darkening sky. I pushed through the doors into the thicket soup of a humid evening, lost in thought. Brianna, I read Matthews. I freeze, then pivot slowly to look for the sort of asshole who calls out someone's full name in public to get their attention. Leaning against the wall just beside the exit is a tall white boy with tousled straw blonde hair and the bluest eyes I've ever seen. He looks like he belongs on the cover of the university brochure, impossibly bright and cheery, wearing plain jeans and a Carolina blue zipped hoodie. When he laughs, the sound is warm and genuine. Now, that's what you call a murderous expression. Want to help me with a follow through? I snap. He smiles, shoves off the wall with one foot and strolls towards me. You're hard to pin down. He looks up briefly as if considering, eyes back on me. And rude too, leaving me on red all day. My eyes fall shut as I mutter. You're the babysitter. Does that mean you're a baby? My eyes snap open to find Nick Davis standing right in front of me, eyes twinkling with barely contained mirth. He's at least four inches taller than me, which is saying something. Even though as a second year EC, he's probably only a year older than I am. Definitely not built like any 17-year-old I know. With his broad shoulders and narrow waist, he looks like one of those Olympic gymnasts. I turn on my heel to leave. This boy is not part of the plan, not the beginning, middle or anywhere in between. Brianna, wait up. Nick jogs to follow. I'll walk you to your dorm. It's Bree, and no thanks. When he catches up, his fresh laundry and cedar scent comes with him. Of course he smells good. Bree, short for Brianna. His dimple-edged smile is probably on a post at a dentist's office somewhere. I'd be happy to escort you, peer mentor and all that, he says without a, st- a stitch of sarcasm. According to the dean, you have a tendency to get lost at night and accidentally end up in the back of police cruisers. I huff and pick up the pace, but he matches mine without missing a beat. How did you find me? He shrugs. I asked Dean McKinnon for your class schedule and campus ID photo. He holds up a hand before I protest. Not personal information typically shared with students, but the EC consent forms we all signed waves that right between mentors, orientation assistants, and other assigned guides. I found out when your last class ended, made a guess as to when you'd hit dinner, then estimated how long it would take you to get through the buffet line at Lenoir, find a table, and eat at that hour of the day. All I had to do was show up and wait outside the exit closest to Old East. I stop, my jaw open. He grins, clearly amused and more, more than a little pleased with himself. So you're a creep? He holds a hand to a chest like I've wounded him. Not a creep, just clever. And operating under Dean McKinnon's explicit orders to make first contact with you today. Ocean eyes set in a tanned face take me in and a knowing smile sends a wave of warmth to my ears. Timed it perfectly too. You walked out five minutes after I arrived. Being clever and being creepy are not mutually exclusive. Oh, I agree. He scratches at his chin. There's probably a Venn diagram or a graph of direct proportionality in there somewhere. I groan. This is, by definition, using your intelligence for evil. Nick tilts his head. Correct. On two levels, in fact. He raises a finger. Using one's cleverness to creep and, a second finger, using one's cleverness to diagram the cleverness to creepiness relationship. I open my mouth, close it, turn and walk away. He follows. We walk in silence for a few moments, letting the night flow around and between us. I glance back once more. 
Nick's easy stroll reminds me of a dancer. Long strides, straight posture. When my eyes reach his face, there's a smile tugging at the corner of his lips. I whip round. After a minute, he speaks up again, his voice curious behind me. So, did you jump the cliff? The one at the quarry? No. Well, he muses, aside from landing in the dean's office on your first day of school, a record, I'm guessing, so well done, it's not the worst thing to do. Cliff's not that high, and it's kind of fun. I turn back to him, surprised in spite of myself. You've done it, he chuckles. I have. But aren't you the dean's golden boy? He lifts a shoulder. I'm great on paper. Tell me about some of the standout characters of the book. I really love Brie, which sounds really um, cliched that I love the, the main character, the protagonist. Well, that's um, good, actually. You've got, I think you've got to really like the main Yeah, the main you want to root for them, don't you? I feel like lots of YA protagonists are quite clueless and a big part of the book is them becoming more independent and coming into themselves. But for me, Brie already knows who she is and what she stands for. The book is more her learning about her past and her ancestral history rather than who she is because she already knows who she is. And it's important because she's discovering why she can see the legendborn magic when no one else can and why her as a woman of colour, descended from women of colour, can use this power, whereas all the Arthurian knights and legendborn, they're mostly all white. So a big part of it is finding out when these two lines intersected. And yeah, she's just a super intriguing character, very headstrong, very independent. And I think she's just a great asset to the book. You learned very early on that Brie, because her mum has died, sort of built a a wall, a barrier around herself to protect Mm -hmm. her emotions. Does that break down? Do we find out that she softens or is that wall important to her, for her character? There's like a massive focus on trauma and how it affects you in the book. And a big part of it is, like you said, Brie making sense of her mother's death and trying to find the importance and reason behind it. But a huge part of it is Brie actually accepting that she's really gone and that life has to go on without her. But when you find out the circumstances around the death and what was happening at the time, there's a massive emphasis on generational trauma, particularly passed down through women of colour and those descended from American slavery. So that's interesting. So, yeah, I would say Brie's walls and trauma and particularly how her mother dealt with trauma and all these ancestors and descendants, that's a big part of it as well. But it, for me, it was interesting because there's not many YA books that go that deeply into trauma and like the walls you build. So it was interesting how Tracy Dion mixed this with American racial history as well. So we're looking here at inherited trauma and collective memory. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So read this book if you want what? What are the what are the main tropes then that this book has? Fast paced action. Right. Um, out, an outgoing and independent female characters with a main leading protagonist of colour, which is really important. A dash of unexpected romance, I would say. Demons and the supernatural, a blend of Arthurian legend and Southern Black American culture, and lots of twists and turns. But I actually found a really good quote in the front of my book that I think sums up better than all those bullet points. Um, So they described it as a searing modern tale of grief, power and self-discovery, which I think sums up better than I ever could. Well, I've got to say, it sounds really good. So I definitely, I'm definitely going to read it. And this is book one of the trilogy. Yeah, so she she announced Bloodmarked, I think it's called, which is coming out next year. She recently announced the title and the front of the book, the cover. And Brie is looking amazing. And Selwyn, who you will meet, also looks great. But yeah, very, very excited for book two, for sure. Fantastic. So that's Legend Born by Tracy Dion. 
published by yes. Simon and Schuster. Yeah. And it's available now and book two will be available next year. Yes. Brilliant. That sounds fantastic. Tilly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was uh, a great choice from uh, from Tilly, I thought, and uh, one I look really forward to reading. Mm. So books, as we all know, are just about the most perfect present to buy anyone. They're absolutely ideal for people you know inside out, because you can absolutely hone down to whatever their passion is. Uh, but also they're really good for people you don't particularly know very well. And it's far better than uh, some socks. What do you reckon, Julian? Oh, I certainly think so, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, plain socks. Absolutely, yeah. But get a book. <laughs> There's always going to be something in there. And hopefully you've found lots of inspiration from turning pages over the last few months. And today we want to expand that list of literary ideas with a few ideas that are book related, but not actually books themselves. So days or weekends out and perhaps uh, would be an ideal choice. So you've come up, Julian, with that fabulous weekend away that is not only beautiful, but has a rich literary link to enjoy, haven't you? I have indeed, Heather. And in fact, I have chosen Rye as uh, my suggestion as a destination for a literary excursion. And I've got Um, to say, Rye is the most beautiful village. It is as well. It's a town. Oh, it's a town. I do apologise. Yes. Oh, yes, indeed. You don't want to, <laughs> you be don't want to upset. upset the people of Rye. <laughs> uh, as I'm about to say, the town itself <laughs> is a charming hilltop citadel. It really is a charming citadel um, of cobbled streets, winding lanes and ancient history. Now, in its heyday, it was a major port, which actually, when you go and visit Rye now and overlook the um, the escarpment out towards the sea, all you can see is this rather thin uh, trickle of a, a little bit of a river. But actually, the water came right up to, to Rye in its heyday. And it was really a major port on the south coast. And due to its importance um, of the shipping trade, it became the second of the two ancient towns to become a member of um, the Sank Ports Confederation, or as colloquially they say, the Sink Ports. And the first one was Winchelsea further down the coast. In fact, actually, whilst it was supposed to be the five ports, it did actually um, extend a little bit beyond that. Now, one of the oldest buildings open to the visitors, because it's part of the town's museum, is the Epoch Tower, which was built in 1249, uh, which was, uh, and it was built as part of the town's defences against the French. Well, I've got to say, it's, it is an old town isn't it and yeah and one of my many excursions there we actually looked at a house to see because you know Ah. whenever you go somewhere lovely you think oh I want to live and we looked at this fabulous house that had a medieval painting which was obviously grade one listed unfortunately the medieval painting was on the next door neighbor's house so it was just a blank wall that was listed in the building that we went to have a look at ah. <laughs> which is slightly disappointing but it was absolutely marvelous on the other side <laughs> well i'll be coming to a bit to a fantastic house in a moment um but uh, like you um but b- before you um rye has attracted the attention of uh, many literary giants um who either lived in the town or they came as visitors and wrote about it and uh, uh, amongst those who came and visited and wrote they included Daniel Defoe and William Cobbett Um, however the most celebrated author I think that came to live in Rye was Henry James um, who was uh, uh, most famous book was possibly 
turning uh, the turn of the screw. Now, he settled in the house in, uh, that I was, uh, uh, alluded to was Lamb House, which we visited, um, which was built by a prominent citizen of the town, a, a John Lamb, in 1723. Now, the Lamb family sold the house in 1860, and 30 years later, when Henry James visited Rye, he saw the house, and he was much attracted to it, but he never actually expected that he would ever acquire it. But in fact, in 1899, he did acquire it for the princely sum of £2,000. That sounds like quite a lot of money, actually. Yes, it was a substantial amount of money. And the reason he was able to to, to buy it was that he, he was by then a successful author and, 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 and was earning quite a lot ah, from right. his literary output. Now, <clears throat> during the years until his death in 1960, he lived there from 1899 until 1916, Henry James entertained the great and the good of the literary world. I mean, so E.F. Benson would visit him, H.G. Wells, G.K. Chesterton, Rudyard Kipling, Hugh Walpole, among many, many more. Fantastic. And whilst he was there, he wrote um, some of his most highly regarded novels, which included The Ambassadors, The Awkward Age and The the Golden Bowl. Now, Interesting ago, after his death, and here's another strong literary link, after his death, um, the two brothers, A.C. and E.F. Benson, um, took up residency uh, at Lamb House. And, as we know, E.F. Benson is the author of the Map and Lucia books. Absolutely. We could do a and whole programme on Map and Lucia, We, we could. <laughs> and... And the house and the town were the inspiration for it. So in uh, E.F. Benson's novels, uh, Rye becomes Tilling and uh, Lamb House becomes Mallards in the novels. And uh, just as a little, <coughs> pardon me, as I'll throw in, Mallards is actually owned by Map, but was rented by Lucia. Now, people might have seen... Um... Because the, the television programme on Mass and Lucia. Yes. And yes. they actually used Lamb Did they use Lamb House? I think they did. I think certainly, I th- certainly think they used, I think they used the garden shots possibly. Um, um, but yeah, Lamb House did feature, certainly I think the external. Yeah, because when um, you go, because there's, a, there's a, a window that sort of projects out into the street. And I always imagine um, Lucia sitting there because you can nose up and down. That's right, sides. up and down the street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, though, in fact, actually, interestingly, I, um, Lamb House is tucked away. <clears throat> um, so it's not actually um, on, on the high street, but it's, it's, but you, there's obviously... The idea. People traffic. will be walking exactly, past. Exactly. Now, Lamb House is, is, is now owned by the National Trust. And though it is its tenanted house, it is open to the public and, and National Trust members of course for a couple of days um, a week possibly more now and it really is worth a visit it's got a, a lovely wall garden i mean the time um i visited uh, there, there were a limited number of rooms open to the public which were confined to downstairs but in fact um i think they've got some upstairs rooms now open it's well worth a visit oh fantastic because it's just and lovely isn't it it is absolutely yeah. and now because you are on your weekend away you're doing your literary weekend away you want to go and stay somewhere well now just literally round the corner from Lamb House is the Mermaid Inn in Mermaid Street. And uh, and it's absolutely fantastic. And it's a stunning inn. And it's been welcoming visitors and travellers for over 600 years. I mean, the cellars alone date back to 1156. Wow. It really, yeah. Now, the current building is quite modern, I have to say. It was rebuilt in 1420. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> because it and part of the town were actually burnt down in 1377 by French raiders. Oh, they the came, pesky French! Yes, they came up and they actually sacked the town, and up went up went the uh, the mermaid in and, and part of the town. Now you're booked into you're booked into uh, the the mermaid in, and before dinner you're going to take an aperitif in the giant's fireplace bar, and you're going to imagine being there in the company of the Hawkehurst gang, which was a gang of notorious smugglers because Rye was the centre of smuggling in its heyday in the 1730s and 40s. And they will be there doubtless celebrating the fact that they've evaded the excise men once more. Then after you've taken your aperitif, you're going into the, uh, take your dinner in the Dr. Sin dining room. Now, before you think I'm in the pay of, of the Mermaid Inn, I wish I was, but sadly I'm not. The inn is the link to, um, on, is on link to the next literary character, and that is Dr. Sin himself. Right. Shall we listen to a bit of Dr. Sin? Right, here goes. Chapter One. Dr. Sin meets Mr. Mipps. On a misty morning of late September in the year 1754, young Christopher Sin, Doctor of Divinity, was riding along the flat top of the Dimchurch Sea Wall in the direction of Lim. The Oxford summer vacation was drawing to its close, and he had spent it happily, partly with his uncle, the red-faced, rotund and jovial attorney at New Romney, and partly with his boon companion, Tony Cobtree, at Sir Charles's old court house at Dimchurch. The young student left the sea wall and cantered his horse along the winding roads that crossed the marsh. Eventually he reached the grassy bridle path which runs along the foot of the hills and has been made in years gone by for easy access from camp to camp by the Roman legions. On either side the path sloped steeply down into deep broad dikes fed by the surface water from the hills, but Sin's tall grey horse picked his way carefully. Meanwhile the sun, gathering strength, had dispersed the mist from the hills, and above him he could see his objective, the grim, frowning walls of Lim Castle. He was on his way there to oblige Sir Henry Pembry, who had sent a castle servant the night before to the Dimchurch Court House, bearing a note requesting Dr. Sin to wait upon the Lord of Lim at his earliest convenience. Being an old friend of his uncle Solomon and a justice of the peace, the young cleric had taken the first opportunity to comply, though neither himself nor the Cobtrees could think why Sir Henry should thus summon him. Little did he imagine that such a simple journey was to be the prelude of a mighty odyssey which would demand the abandonment of books and scholarship for murderous adventures with gunpowder and steel. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, indeed. Now, the Reverend Christopher Sin, and I should say, um, just to let listeners know it's spelled S-Y-N, is the hero or maybe the anti-hero of a series of novels written by Russell Thorndike, who was the brother of the famous um, actress in her day, Dame Sybil Thorndike. No, I didn't know that. Mm, yeah. And in fact, actually... The creation of Dr. Sin was a sort of collaboration between um, Russell and, and, and Sybil when they were in a hotel. I think it was in New York, something. And in fact, it was a really strange story. A poor guy had been attacked on the street below right. and, and, and actually been left for dead. And, and, and they're waiting for um, the, the police to sort this out. And, and, and so they sort of hunkered themselves down in their hotel room. And then they, somehow they just started to create Dr. Sin. And, 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 and that was it. <laughs> That's yeah, it's extraordinary. Now, there so are seven. 
seven seven uh, novels in the series. The first was published in 1915, with the following six appearing from 1935 over 20 years after the first. Now, in fact, the curious thing is that the first novel published in 1915, Dr. Sin, A Tale of Romney Marsh, is actually the last one to be read. Ah, uh, right, OK. Out. So I imagine that, uh, that, that there we go, um, <clears throat> <laughs> Poor old Russell, he's, he's written this novel, they you crikey, and he's come up with what is now fashionable, fashionably called the backstory. Yes. And he, he knocked out another six novels um, to, 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 to fill it out. Um, and these were all done, um, and so the six came out um, between 1935 and 1944. Now, they're set in the salt marshes around Romney and Dimchurch, um, and Dr. Sin has settled down to a life of a rural parson, having accepted the living of the vicar of Dimchurch after several years at sea. Now, into the mix comes Captain Collier with a detachment of Royal Navy tax and revenue officers investigating a notorious smuggling mm-hmm. ring. When the captain comes to the town, he, he, he finds a village of Dimchurch seemingly um, occupied and um, by honest, pious people, benevolently looked after by the vicar, Dr. Sim. Well, in fact... Dr. Sin is the leader of the smuggling gang. So sin in name, sin in nature, hey? Exactly. (laughs) Using the cover of his cloth to run a very profitable enterprise, and he uses the, um, the, the, the profits from that enterprise for the betterment of his parishioners. Oh, so of course, he's a bit yes. Of, yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't sort of uh, touch any of it himself. So it's a bit anyway, of a Robin Hood character, was he? Exactly, exactly, with a, with a dog collar. Um, but it doesn't take Captain Collier uh, long to twig what's going on. And after a series of chases across the salt marsh, yes. uh, with Dr. Sin leading the, his night riders, as it was called, or devil riders, as they were, as they were also called, in the guise of the scarecrow, narrowly outwitting the exercise men and it was really quite atmospheric because they, they created these devil riders to actually frighten the local oh, people to stay right. off the marshes yes. when they went to, to to do their smuggling. Yeah. Now, in all of this, Dr. Collier then discovers um, that Dr. Sin is none other than Captain Clegg, the notorious pilot um, oh. who he... Collier thought had been executed years before. Now, I'm going to leave it there because there's so much in, 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 in the novels and you've really got to enjoy them yourselves. As I say, there are seven in, in, in total. And the first one, chronologically, in terms of the story, which was published uh, in 1935, is Dr. Sin on the High Seas. Now, there have been three films um, based, as you know, I always like to pop in a few films. Oh, quite right too. Just to back up a novel. Um, And the first was called Simply Dr. Sin, and that was um, uh, released in 1937 with George Arliss playing um, the Doctor. And that was quite a sort of gentle uh, book. Then there was uh, the second one was called Captain Clegg, which starred Peter Cushing, um, which is a much darker version. Um, and that was released by the Hammer Film Production. Right. So they were known for their, you know, the Hammer, uh, yes. Hammer Horror Films as yes. well. And that was really quite atmospheric. Um, and that was in 1962. Then in 1963, Walt Disney produced um, a version called The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh with Patrick McGowan playing Dr. Sin. Now, that one also included George Cole and Michael Horton. So with those in there, you can imagine that it was a much more gentle yes, um, story yes. rather than the, ha- the horror one. Um, now... I've, 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 I did some, some research, uh, and unfortunately, I don't seem to to be able to see that there are any current British editions of the books available. Right. So if you wanted British ones, it might be a case of searching in the second-hand market. Yeah, yeah. But 
Um, there are American editions, which were released in 2013 um, by an American company called Black Curtain Press. But So they are really available. They, they yeah. are available. They yeah. are available, yes. I mean, you can pop into your local uh, bookshop. They may be able to get them. Um, <clears throat> uh, but it, it, but it, it, the company's called Black Curtain Press. But they really are good. I mean, they're very atmospheric. Um, but they're and, great uh, ones well, to search for in secondhand shops, aren't they? In absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Because actually the, the American edition is rather, a rather plain jackets in black with a skull and crossbow yes. on it and the title is the same whereas the original ones really had some excellent jackets so worthwhile looking in yeah, the second hand definitely box. and sorry i interrupted you before when you're talking about no. the atmosphere the atmosphere of the romney marshes and you're absolutely right there's something about i think all the mist and mm. the dangerous paths that form yes. over the marshes, yes. especially in the dark. Yes. And it reminded me, of course, that um, AJ McKenzie, who we've had on the programme before, yeah. has written a number of fabulous murder mysteries based on the marsh. And their books set in 1796. Is that about the same sort of that's time? About the same, yeah, that's about the same period, yes. Yeah, and yeah absolutely. The, so I think yeah. that's, of course, when the uh, French Revolution, uh, sorry, the uh, Napoleonic Wars, Yes. Are, are in its heights exactly. so of course presumably the tax on brandy and things like that we would normally Ex- buy from france ph- yeah was, exactly was it was it was, was was phenomenal hence the drug uh, the smuggling and it was exactly. basically it was brandy yes. um and cognac that the smugglers were going for quite right too yes yeah. so yes. um aj mckenzie has written their hardcastle and chater books and the first one is a body on the doorstep and it follows right. another reverend this time Reverend Hardcastle, who has a body collapsed dead on his doorstep in the middle of the night, and then he gets caught up in finding the killer. So Hardcastle, in this instance, is a, is a goodie. He's part of the smuggling ring. But also, right. I think he does... I think the whole village sort of get involved in smuggling right. at some level. Excellent. I think uh, they, they turn I, I think, But I think they do, yes. I think there's always somebody, you know, they're you know, either passing it along or, yeah, it, it's, it's exciting. I know, exactly. Yeah. So when we went along to the book launch of, uh, of that book, yeah. we actually uh, had the book launch in a place called the Star Inn, which features in the book and was oh, around excellent. at the time. So yeah. that was really excellent. lovely. <laughs> oh, and I've also got one little tip for oh, yes. any of our listeners who are planning um, maybe to go down to Rye on a literary excursion yeah. and if you're staying in um the, the springtime oh yes yeah uh, and, you, and maybe you're uh, wherever you go um it, the romney um the the salt marsh lamb is much favored in kent so oh. there is actually uh, salt marsh lamb so if you it? like roast lamb in the spring the salt marsh lamb is is quite prized down in, in in that part of Kent and Sussex. Excellent, that sounds good. Now um, I've got a couple of suggestions for Christmas presents that don't necessarily involve a physical book, mm-hmm. uh, which possibly aren't so time intensive. So I don't know about you, but I end up signing up to be friends with many many museums and associations, and I think it's a lovely way of supporting something and feeling good at the same at the whole process at the same time and you get that lovely benefit of connection with whatever it is that you want to link with so my first suggestion is to become a friend of the Henley Literary Festival it's such a fabulous important event in uh, for the Thames Valley um it's really worth supporting for that alone 
And being a friend doesn't just mean supporting the future of the festival. You'll also receive special benefits in return, including friends-only priority booking. And this year, there was quite a number of the hot tickets that got sort of sold out straight away. So they had um, the people with the vac- the vaxxers, the, the lady um, scientist who, the Oxford, oh, yes. from Oxford, who, I mean, her talk was sort of sold out in, in minutes. Mm. So it's really good to be a friend of the Henny Literary Festival. Make sure you get into the hottest events before public mm. sales begin. And uh, when purchasing a gift membership, you can actually choose which date your friend is automatically emailed with their surprise gift. Or, in fact, if you want a friend's membership card to be put under the Christmas tree, you can also contact them via email, which is info at hennyliteraryfestival.co.uk. And they can organise that too. And just just to mention there, it's only £35. Yes, absolutely. Yes. What a bargain. Exactly. And I've got another suggestion. Who could not, who could refuse a book and a bottle? Oh, oh yes. Subscription. <laughs> so the little bookshop in, in Cookham have just come up with this brilliant idea. Their bookshop is opposite a fabulous wine merchant's. And so they've, they're working together. So this is just one of the best Christmas presents, I think. The most delightful of presents. You can choose three, six or a 12-month subscription. And basically you get sent a, a book beautifully gift wrapped and it'll be a newly released fiction book carefully selected so you might be able to suggest oh I just want crime or you know I want literary fiction or whatever and then that's included with a bottle of wine from the old butcher's wine cellar um, opposite and that'll be delivered to the door that does restrict it to the Cookham, Bournemouth, Marlow, Maidenhead areas but uh, it's definitely a brilliant idea and you can register for that on their website which is Mm -hmm. the little book shop.info um, and they can also organise a monthly book, book subscription which sends off a paperback per month depending on uh, whoever the uh, the lucky person is depending on their taste but it's a fabulous mm-hmm. and easy present and um, I've also got another visit um, which is a residential library mm-hmm. so some friends of mine um, Norman and Sue have actually uh, tried this out on my behalf and it was fantastic so William Gladstone uh, of course Prime Minister four times in Queen Victoria's reign um, he decided that he wanted to open a Prime Ministerial library because he was really in to um, lifelong learning Mm -hmm. He had all these books and he wanted to share them with as many people as possible. So he bought this uh, building in the village of Harden in Flintshire. And um, there's 150,000 books that had to be transported from his house up to the library, which was done in wheelbarrows. You can imagine Mm. these men (laughs) filling the wheelbarrows full of books and taking them up. And now it's just this lovely space, a quiet library. And so if you want to do research or if you're just writing a book or some poetry Mm. or just want time just to contemplate and be in solitude, then it's just a really beautiful um, place to be, a perfect retreat. And you can find out more about it by looking at gladstoneslibrary.org. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, it's, it, it, it's a very, very handsome building. And just to um, uh, just to let listeners know, um, it's actually spelled Harwarden, oh, the yes. village, Sorry, yes. but it's actually pronounced Harden. So, in fact, actually, I, I saw a newspaper, a letter in the in the Telegraph the other day from somebody, and he, and he actually had misspelt it, um, uh, and it. Uh, and if, and it is Harwarden, but it's pronounced Harden. And in fact, the Gladstone family still live at Harden Castle, um, but I don't believe it's open to the public. Oh. Anyway, as proof that some of the best things in life are free, why don't you pop over to Pooh Corner, which is located on the edge of the Ashdown Forest in East Sussex, uh, near Hartfield. Um, it's the perfect stop for either the casual visitor or the die-hard fan of A.A. A. Milne's most famous creation, Winnie the Pooh and his friends. Now, you can take uh, in the Pooh walks across the 100-acre wood, uh, which will take you to some of the sites of Pooh's adventures. Um, a short walk will take you to the Enchanted Place and the Sandy Pit, which is, of course, suitable for yes. younger children. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you can also do longer walks, uh, which descend to the North Pole mm. um, and Eeyore's sad and gloomy place. Now, all of the little walks um, or longer walks are are, are listed uh, in a booklet, which you can get uh, by going to the following website, which is quite simply poocorner.co.uk. Brilliant. Mm. And so to remind ourselves why um, this trip is worthwhile, I'm going to share a poem with you, which is Three Cheers for Pooh from a collection called The Hums of Pooh, published by Matthew. And in fact, the hums are exactly that. They are the little hums that Pooh would sing to himself as he went about his daily tasks. So we were talking about, uh, last week we were talking about poetry and the importance of learning poetry. Yes. And one of my really good friends, this is, this is her poem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, oh, really lovely. Now, the original edition of The Hums of Pooh, uh, interestingly, which was published in 1929, came complete with music written by um, H. Fraser Simpson. Um, but my edition, um, which was uh, which is the one that you, you, you'll get now, was published in 1972 and was reprinted in 1974, but it didn't have the music. So it lends itself actually to a nice little bit of poetry. Oh, so we don't have to listen to your, uh, your singing. No, then. my cantata. No, not at all. Uh, I'll spare you that. That's for another week. So here's Three Cheers for Pooh. Excellent. Three Cheers for Pooh. Three cheers for Pooh, for who, for Pooh. Why, what did he do? I thought you knew. He saved his friend from a wetting. Three cheers for Bear, for where, for Bear. He couldn't swim, but he rescued him. He rescued who? Oh, listen, do. I'm talking of Pooh, of who, of Pooh. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting. Well, Pooh was a bear of enormous brain. Just say it again. Of enormous brain. Of enormous what? Well, he ate a lot. And I don't know if he could swim or not, but he managed to float on a sort of a boat. On a sort of a what? Well, a sort of a pot. So now let's give him three hearty cheers. So now let's give him three hearty witches and hope he'll be with us for years and years and grow in health and wisdom and riches. Three cheers for Pooh. For who? For Pooh. Three cheers for Bear. For where? For Bear. Three cheers for the wonderful Winnie the Pooh. Just tell me, somebody, what did he do? Oh, that is lovely. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's really good. It's a great one, that one. I like it very much. Uh, and, and, and on top of it, of course, the, the, the most 
important thing you could do when you're out on your walk is go and play poo sticks oh, yes. at, the, at Pooh's own stick bridge. Now, the original bridge was built in 1907, would you believe, yeah. and was originally called um, Posingford Bridge. And local historians suggested that um, it, was, it was the bridge which A.A. Uh, a. Milne and his son Christopher Robin first played the game. Yeah. Now, the bridge maintain, uh, was maintained at the public's interest and the campaign to rebuild it in the late 70s was considered important, important enough to feature actually on the BBC Nine O'Clock News. Oh, year. quite right too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the bridge was, it was uh, subsequently reopened by Christopher Robin Milne and was officially renamed as Pooh Sticks Bridge. Now, the site um, uh, was so popular and still so popular that in 1999, the East Sussex County Council made an appeal to Disney um, as the old wooden bridge uh, was really worn down with the um, overwhelming number of of visitors that went and crossed it. Um, Now, Disney provided a substantial donation towards the estimated £30,000 needed to replace it. Um, It was uh, partly rebuilt in 1979, um, with the donations from Disney and also from building firms and members of the public. Um, they then eventually got enough money to have it completely uh, rebuilt. Uh, and they, uh, the newly rebuilt and modernised bridge has retained its precursor's original title. Great. So yes. Yeah. But lovely. of course, we need to say, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, you can play poo sticks on any bridge. Uh, you can indeed. Absolutely. Any bridge at all. Yes. So it's that time of the year when everyone, every newspaper that you read, is putting together the best of the year book suggestions. Mm -hmm. And I thought we'd share a few of them. So this week we've got some from the Sunday Times. But I think what we'll do next week is we'll have a look at all of the papers and see if there's any themes coming along across the across the range. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, one of them um, from the Times is a novel of the year, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is published by Fabe. And it's a vintage Ishiguro and helps us think about the impact of artificial friends. Yes. Now, we spoke of that many, many months ago when, uh, when it was first launched. And it's proved popular over and over again with book exactly. clubs up and down the country, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely, because that's, yeah, well, you know, not quite a year ago, but almost, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So Crime Novel of the Year is The Appeal by Janice Hallett, which is published by Viper. Now, this is a traditional crime novel set in an English village seething with class conflict, as all English villagers seem to do in crime novels. So it's a really fabulous book. It consists entirely of documentary evidence sent to a couple of law students from a leading QC and centres around a miscarriage of justice. So it's a hugely satisfying satisfying intellectual challenge as you're trying to work out the story as you're reading along. It sounds brilliant. Uh, It does. And also it's a really good example of a book that hadn't crossed my path at all Mm -hmm. until it's popping up now as Crime Novel of the Year. just shows you how difficult it is to find uh, great books. It is, it is. Well, now here maybe is uh, is another one which is in the Thriller of the Year category and it's Billy Summers by Stephen King, uh, published by Hodder. Now, initially, the story is of a weary hitman going to do one last job um, and he has to go into hiding once the job has been completed. Then he switches into unpaid vigilante missions. Now, this has actually been uh, touted as one of King's best novels for a number of years. And he's such a good 
uh, thriller writer. Oh, he is. Yeah. Yes, he is. Yes. It's going to be good. So historical novel of the year is Rose Nicholson by Andrew Grieg and it's published by River Run. And it's set in Scotland in the 1570s as religious and political controversies tear the country apart. So brilliant storytelling, an absorbing adventure. And it's told by a student poet, Will Fowler, about himself and Rose Nicholson, his unrequited love interest, who are dragged into a bitter feuding of the day. Gosh, gosh, indeed. Now, in case you've forgotten, you are listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And as I keep saying, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have anything that you want to share with us about a book you're reading, an author you want to recommend, you're running a book club, just let us know. We really do want to hear from you. So please contact me by email at julian at river.radio, um, jotting down all your news, or indeed, um, if you have an idea for a theme for one of our weekly shows, then please do. That would be really good. And we're coming, we're obviously coming up, it's December now, we're coming up to our Christmas shows. So we're looking for your favourite Christmas poems. Well, yes, that would be ideal. And uh, our our listener from last week, Joy Pennells, would be delighted to hear your choice for Christmas. Joy? And I'm sure she, and she, and she will, and Joy will certainly be able to, um, to uh, provide some herself, I think. Joy, if you're listening, we want your recommendations. Yeah, we do. So get, (laughs) get clacking on your emails and let us know. (laughs) Um, and our hour is almost up so it's a very big thank you for listening and we really do appreciate it so thank you very much indeed Um, now we have some um, of the other books that we uh, are recommending today um, one of which is Michael Holding Why We Kneel How We Rise by Simon and Schuster The Island of the Missing Trees by Alif Shafak published by Viking Legend Born by uh, Tracy Dion, published by Simon and Schuster. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. That was the, that was the suggested one. Do you agree? The Turn. Turn. Yes, of the I, I, I think that because I think that's probably the the um, the most famous. Yes. I think a lot of people heard that because it is uh, because it is. I mean, it is it is a ghost story, exactly. uh, and I think that's the, sort of the the atmospheric thing. People just immediately think of the Turn of the Screw and uh, and Henry James. Yes. And then, of course, we have Dr. Sin on the High Seas by Russell Thorndike. That's the one I'll be uh, be reading yes. straight after the show. Uh, Clara and the Sun by Kazoo Ishiguru, published by Faber. Um, then we have Billy Summers by Stephen King, published by Hodder. The Hums of Pooh, of course, published by Methuen. Indeed, indeed. And uh, The Appeal by Janice Hallett, published by Viper. And Rose Nicholson by Andrew Grieg, published by uh, River Run. And The Body on the Doorstep by AJ McKenzie, published by Zaffer. Very important, yes. A very important that because I think that, that those will give you, uh, between um, uh, Dr. Sin and those, they'll give you a good time yes. uh, on the Romney marshes. Yes, absolutely. So don't forget at uh, two o'clock, we have got coming up, let's do business um, yes, on that. River Radio. So that'll be lots of, uh, that'll be really interesting. And we do need to talk about business books, which and self-help books, which is something we'll also cover next week. Yes, I think I think that's very important. Yes, because also not, not only that, because it, 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 they're, they're good um, ideas for gift books as well. Because I'm sure there's somebody in your family that uh, is quite keen on 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 self help books or, and uh, business books. Well, they always seem to top the uh, charts. 
in terms of um, what uh, what people are reading. So that's always a, a good well, thing they, to have. Well, they, they do. And also, I don't want to put the mockers on it, but they're also... <laughs> Whilst it's great sales for the publishers and the authors, they're often the most least read books in the end. You know? Oh, don't say that. <laughs> it doesn't matter as long as they get sold. <laughs> as, a, as a buyer of self-help books, I'd like to say I read them. Oh, oh well, there we are. No, yeah, well, you're a goody two-shoes, aren't you, Heather? No, I, I'd like to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, I'm sure that, that it, 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 it's on your to-read to pile, aren't yes. they? So there they are, yes. yes. <laughs> Which is growing bigger and bigger by the yes. moment. <laughs> And once you flick the cobwebs off, you'll probably get to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, anyway, um, we look forward to uh, you joining us next Wednesday between 11am and 12 noon on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us, then you can listen again directly from our website and Turning Pages also available as a podcast, which is all the rage in Algeria, apparently, and elsewhere. So you just find us by searching for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast yes that's that's uh, absolutely fine it's you can listen again to all of our past episodes they're all there they're all listed yes from yeah. from from the very first broadcast i think from way back from way back yes, when way so back. it's been lovely to have your company and we look forward to you joining us next uh, next week bye-bye bye bye